Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Another extraordinary program for you today. Greetings on this beautiful day here. Spring is coming to Portland. I hope it is to where you live, and I hope it comes soon to Ukraine. You know, all these cities where they've cut off the power and cut off the water and food, it's, this, is, this is war crimes on steroids. Speaking of which, keep in mind, Viktor Yanukovych, the Putin puppet who ran Ukraine for a couple of years, before the color revolution that evicted him and replaced him with uh, Petro Poroshenko and ultimately Zelensky, was put into place, was brought to power by Paul Manafort, Donald Trump's first campaign advisor. Paul Manafort was pulled off an airplane uh, apparently yesterday afternoon because he's trying to flee to Dubai. Well, this is interesting, but I don't know that it's gonna go any farther than that. Anyhow, Judge Jackson's hearings, in my opinion, proves that all the sold-out GOP has left is performance art. When are Republican voters going to finally figure this out? I'll share that story with you in a minute. It's from our, my daily rant. Also, Dr. Justin Frank, professor of psychiatry at George Washington University Medical School, is going to be dropping by to talk about Putin on the couch, as it were. Does he have a victimhood narrative? And how do victimhood narratives work in both family and political dynamics, social dynamics? Also, with right-wingers believing that Biden is illegitimate, this is very strange. This is increasingly, we have, quote, conservative thinkers, serious people writing in serious journals saying that, yeah, Biden won the election, he won the Electoral College, he won the popular vote, he's still illegitimate. What? When are Republican voters gonna figure that out? Also, geeky science, rubies and sapphires raining out of the sky. I got to tell you about this. It's an amazing science story. So that's the broad outline of our program for the day. I want to start out with my piece today from HartmanReport.com. It's titled, Judd Jackson's hearing proves that all the sold out GOP has left is performance art. I mean, it's, it's somewhere between comical and tragic watching and listening to the hearings of uh, Judge Jackson yesterday. Uh, Lindsey Graham threw his trademark hissy fit and stomped out of the uh, out of the hearing room. John Cornyn tried to sound erudite and failed. Marsha Blackburn outed herself as a religious fanatic. Ted Cruz thinks black judges should vet children's books about racism. And Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton just ended up making fools of themselves. But none of them actually really care. 
In fact, none of the Republicans, the elected Republicans, really do. Maybe Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney, but outside of them, at least with regard to the Senate, nah. And I don't mean that as a, just a, a purely partisan rant, a polemic. I mean this as a serious analysis of what has happened to the Republican Party over the last 40 years, which is what informed their behavior in yesterday and today's hearings. And I mean, this bizarre behavior. Back in 1976 and 78, the Supreme Court in two decisions, Buckley and Bilotti, ended the laws against political bribery. In 76, they said billionaires can own politicians. In 78, they said corporations can own politicians. And this, of course, while the Democratic Party was still happily marinating in big money from the unions, this opened the door for the Republican Party to just, you know, boom. I mean, just a, an ocean of cash flowed into the Reagan campaign in 1980. And then the court doubled down in 2010 with, Supreme, with, uh, with their Supreme Court decision, Citizens United, which destroyed over a, a hundred laws, state and federal, all across the country that regulated money in politics. And, and in the years since then, in the 12 years since then, the entire Republican Party has just basically sold out, as have a few Democrats, most notably Manchin and Cinema. But, you know, there are some in the House as well. I mean, we got one here in Oregon, uh, you know, uh, Kurt Schrader. So now we've got this complete sellout. So what were the Republicans actually trying to do yesterday at these hearings? I would submit to you that they really only had two goals. The first was to smear Anything the Democrats do, anything that has to do with Joe Biden, anything that has to do with the Democratic Party, in this case, his nomination of the first black woman for the U.S. Supreme Court, Ketanji Brown Jackson. Um, and the way that they tried to smear her is by making sure that over the next 24 hours of the news cycle, whenever her name is mentioned, child porn, critical race theory, and terrorists from Gitmo will also be mentioned. That was goal number one. Just muddy her up, you know, just cover her with dirt to the extent that you can. The second goal was to create a performance, a little bit of performance art, a, a, a sound clip, a couple of sentences. And I'm telling you, you know, when senators, when their staff write these rants that they do in these things, um, they're, they're literally the, the staff writers, and they do hire staff writers for these things. The staff writers are looking for the two sentences that they know they're going to push out with the press release or they know that Fox News is going to pick up or in the case of, you know, progressive senators that they think MSNBC will pick up. It's, it, I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, you know, if you want to do this. And so all that they were really doing was trying to come up with their little 20 or 30 second clip that would play on a loop on Fox News and other, you know, right wing hate media. That's it. This is happening because the GOP is really no longer interested in governing. I mean, this is why for 19 years on this program, I've had this contest. The only person who has won so far, uh, you know, identified a, a relatively obscure uh, law that Republicans passed that arguably benefited a few Americans. But I, I'm, I'm going to set that aside for purposes of this discussion. I cannot think of, and you cannot think of, one single piece of legislation proposed by Republicans, passed by Republican legislature, signed by a Republican president, whose principal beneficiaries are average working people or poor people. 
100 since 1980, 100% of all Republican legislation since 1980 has been devoted, or at least 99% of all Republican legislation since 1980 has been devoted to the extraordinarily rich and big corporations. It's just that simple. And it's not like it's a secret. They've been telling us this for 40 years. What's their mantra? Everybody knows it. Deregulation, tax cuts, small government. Right? Deregulate. Do away with pollution control so that the big polluting companies can make more money and we, you know, and our children can get more cancers. To cut taxes. Make sure that the, the over-rich become the morbidly rich while average working people are, you know, are left behind. And small government, hey, screw poor people. It's, I mean, it's just, back in the 1980s, by the way, these three things, tax cuts, deregulation, and small government, actually sold. Ronald Reagan could actually sell this stuff. This was the new idea. It hasn't been tried since 1921 with the Harding administration. Of course, it led us right straight to the Great Depression, but, yeah, you know. Nobody's alive who remembers that. So, you know, they don't have any concerns about actual issues. All they're trying to do, you know, the Republican Study Committee came out last year and said, you know, our number one task, number one, win the culture wars. And by the way, we're winning, they said. They don't care how many gay or trans kids commit suicide because of their demagoguery. They don't care how many red state teenage girls get pregnant because they never learned about human reproduction or lack access to birth control. They don't care how many kids are going to die by gunshot today. Species going extinct. Weather wilding, destroying another thousand homes like we just saw down south overnight. Childhood cancers exploding. People crushed by medical bills and losing their homes. Republicans don't want to hear about this stuff. The struggles of average working people are meaningless to them, as are the crises of people struggling with medical or educational debt. They literally, they, you know, they, and these are problems that literally don't exist in any other nation. They're things we could solve tomorrow. But the Republicans are like, no. Like I said earlier, and I'm going to go into some detail later, COVID shots and tests for uninsured Americans which is like 30 million Americans, end today. And they're happy to ignore the fact that the United States, you know, apparently on advice from beer bong Brett Kavanaugh when he was working for George W. Bush, tortured and murdered people at Gitmo. Their absurd concern that white children will be scarred for life by discovering that a small minority of white people were once brutal slaveholders. This is just pure theater as is their proclaimed worry that kids reading about the Holocaust or a novel that describes the black or LGBTQ experience in America is going to twist young minds. Really? It's all theater to distract us from their real work, which is increasing the poisons in our air and water to jack up the, the profits of their obscene overlords. And the more hate they can create among Americans, the better, because that means that their social media presence will you know, be jacked up by the algorithms that keep us in a state of perpetual outrage. Seriously, they have no interest in governing. I mean, sure, they'll wrap a little tiny carrot for the average person in a, in a giant box with a pony for the, for the billionaires, like with the Bush tax cuts or the Reagan tax cuts or the Trump tax cuts. But are they going to do anything for the average working person? Are they going to do anything for poor people in America, for the 50% of Americans who have a negative net worth? 
No, not a chance. Forget about it. When are Republicans going to wake the hell up to this? What's it going to take? Do you have any suggestions about how to wake Republicans up to the, you know, Republican voters to what their elected officials are doing? Biden's illegitimacy. This is a bizarre story. And rubies and sapphires from the sky? Malcolm in Bluebell, Pennsylvania. Hey, Malcolm, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I just have two cents to add in. Our philosophy in Vietnam was to save a village. You destroy that village. My father, he spent five years there serving. And that was what he came back with. And if you remember with General Colin Powell, he said that if you break it, you bought it. Referring to, uh, I want to say most likely Libya and the way we left. No, he was referring to Iraq, and uh, we had to destroy the village to save the village, I believe was a quote from McNamara, uh, Nixon's defense, or Johnson's defense secretary. I could be wrong on that. Right. And so as long as you have corporations that are stepping in once wars are over to rebuild these cities, it seems like it's just going to continue and go on and on. Yeah. I'm with you, Malcolm. And those very corporations are recycling all kinds of money to the politicians in America because the Supreme Court made that legal. And lastly, it's amazing that Marjorie Taylor Greene, she can get on television and tell a whole country to give up. There's no way you're going to win this, but they won't tell Trump that about the 2020 election. (laughs) I love it. Malcolm, that's brilliant. Yes, Marjorie Taylor Greene goes on TV and says, oh, yeah, Zelensky should just give up. He's lost. But she won't say that about Donald Trump. That is brilliant. Yeah. Well, Malcolm, thank you. That That was great. Thank you very much. Kevin in Durham, North Carolina. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I just want to say I agree with you about what the Republicans are doing right now. It's just, uh, you know, throwing out campaign messaging and trying to get spots on Fox News. I, uh, I've been following Ted Cruz's Twitter all morning, and all it is is just one Fox News clip after the other. Yeah. Him going off critical race theory, which, of course, you know, I, I've, I've talked about this in your show before. I mean, here in my neck of the woods, Black kids were actually targeted at school in a mock slave auction. Wow. Now, to people like Ted Cruz and uh, Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin and Marsha Blackburn, do they care about how those black kids felt going no. through something like that? No, they don't care about they don't care about white kids either. Well, you know, I mean, you know, just just to, Kevin, just to take that to the next step, they're all worried about little white kids learning that there was, you know, a minority of white people back in the day who owned slaves. But they're not at all concerned about black kids experiencing discrimination right now. That's exactly what I said on Twitter. It's like, you know, you're, you're concerned about kids learning about slavery. What about the black kids who are actually experiencing racism? right now in our schools. Yeah. Do you care about that? Well, yeah. No, they don't. They don't. They're, they're, anyway, they're, it's all, you know, it's all performance it, theater. It's all campaign messaging. They know she's going to get confirmed. This is just about upping their profile yep. for the 2022 election, 2024 yep. election. I agree. I think for Josh Hawley, for Tom Cotton, for Ted Cruz, uh, this is about running for president in 2024. That's what they're trying to do. And for Marsha Blackburn, she's just trying to cement her credentials as that she's risen above her bachelor's degree in home economics. Honest to God, I didn't I didn't you know, I remember those back in the 60s. You could get a B.S. in home ec, but I didn't didn't think anybody in, in the Senate had one. 
Uh, I, I, I probably shouldn't laugh. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm dating myself here. Kevin, thank you very much for the call. I got to run, but you know this. This is uh, this is just nuts. It's just nuts. And what's it going to take to wake up Republican voters to how they're being scammed? I'm not sure it's even possible. Maybe you have an idea. We'll be right back. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Mark in Valley, Washington. Hey, Mark, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Well, first off, real quick comment. Uh, this this student debt and all this debt, this is how corporate America is trying to turn us all into serfs. Yep. Now, to your comment about fixing the Republicans or, or changing their mind, I have two points why I think it won't work. Number one, you can't fix stupid. And number two, that the ones that aren't stupid, you can't fix sociopathic greed. Or bigotry. Yeah, which goes along with stupid. Yeah, often, yeah. Uh, there are some very smart bigots out there, too. But, yeah, I get what you're saying, Mark. The one thing that gives me some hope was the year I lived in Germany back in 86, 87. And, you know, I mean, it, it, when you do the studies, the, the most recent study on authoritarian tendencies, they found that 26% of Americans display authoritarian tendencies, virtually all of them Republicans. In Germany, that number is 6%. So it is possible for people to learn from the stupid experiences of their nation. The question is, does it require oh, agree, virtually you know, all their cities being bombed into rubble for them to learn that lesson? That's what I mean. Look what they had to go through to get to that learning curve. Yeah. I mean, it's going to take that here, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, I hope you're wrong, Mark. I hope that there is a way that they, they, can, 
they can be awakened. I've tried for you know 19 years on this program debating conservatives, inviting conservatives on, and trying to change their mind. It doesn't. doesn't how many? How work. many of them have you actually changed their mind? We've had two or three people call in in the last year saying, you know, I used to be a conservative, <laughs> but you know, two or three, yeah. Okay, I mean, it might yeah, be I've like mice, you know, count I've one, one. In all your, yeah, I've been one. preaching the same stuff for years, and I've converted one person that I know of. Yeah. Well, good on you, Mark. I mean, you know, that's one more than you had before. So keep it up. True, but keep that, it up. <laughs> I got to move along. That's real here. encouraging. Yeah, Mark, I get your point. Thank you for the call. Amazing, just absolutely amazing stuff. Why right wingers think that Joe Biden is illegitimate? This is an amazing story giving credit where credit is due. Thomas Zimmer wrote a piece about this in The Guardian. He's a Georgetown University history professor. And he's pointing out uh, this essay by Glenn Elmers over at the Claremont Institute's uh, right-wing publication, American Mind. And in this piece, written by a right-winger for one of these right-wing think tanks funded by right-wing billionaires, Professor Zimmer points out, he says, he says, it's notable that Elmer makes no claim that the 2020 election was stolen. He doesn't allege manipulation. He doesn't allege voter fraud or conspiracy. In fact, he acknowledges that more people voted for Biden than for Trump. So what's the problem? Well, he goes on to say that the election is illegitimate and must not be accepted. But wait a minute, he says that Biden actually won. He actually got the most votes. He actually won the Electoral College. He, but, he, but his election is illegitimate and couldn't be, shouldn't be accepted. What is he talking about? What he's talking about is this growing belief within the Republican Party and widespread among its base that anytime a Democrat wins, it's an illegitimate election. It doesn't matter how honest the election was. It doesn't matter how, it, none of that matters. It was all George Soros, don't you know? And stuff like that. He writes, Elmer's is outraged precisely because he accepts the fact that a majority voted for Biden, that authentic Americans have become the minority, that would be, you know, white, straight white people, have become the minority in a country, or at least straight white men, um, which they are supposedly entitled to dominate. Here we have a striking glimpse of the depth of despair underlying the pervasive siege mentality on the right. He goes on to say, it has become a core tenet of the Republican worldview to consider the Democratic Party as not just a political opponent, but an enemy pursuing an un-American project of turning what is supposed to be a white Christian patriarchal nation into a land of godless multiracial pluralism. Republicans saying the Democratic Party is not legitimate. This is the this is the story under the story that the media almost never talks about. That you know these guys want they want a white ethno state and a, with authoritarian leadership like Donald Trump, a wannabe Vladimir Putin. And someday they may get it. And I'm telling you, if they do, their children are going to be very very unhappy. Their children will be unhappy specifically because they're going to have to grow up in a dictatorship. Not a pleasant thing. There is power in being the victim, right? I mean, you get in an argument with your spouse and the first person to cry who's the victim, you know, oh my God, you know, suddenly there's like some 
sort of moral power in that. It's a, it, it, it can shut down an argument. How is Vladimir Putin using this? There's, there's been some uh, public speculation about this by people in the psychology business, and so I thought we'd check in with, with our resident expert, Dr. Justin A. Frank, MD. He's a psychoanalyst and clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University. He's the author of Trump on the Couch, Obama on the Couch, Bush on the Couch, and uh, his Twitter handle, which is the best way to follow him, is Justin Frank MD, spelled just like it sounds. Uh, Dr. Frank, welcome back. I, I'm asking you here to put Putin on the couch. Uh, what What are your thoughts on on uh, what's going on inside this guy's head right now, and what it means for the future of the world? Well, the people I put on the couch in my books are, by the way, hi Tom. The hi. people, uh, the, the, the people I put on the couch in my books, I study for at least you know a year or two intensively, and I don't have that kind of uh, expertise on Putin, so I can put his type on the couch mm -hmm. and the authoritarian type, and uh, you. You framed this uh, discussion initially with the idea of being a victim. Um, some people find ways that we are, we actually have seen a lot of this in this country. Trump has claimed himself a victim. Uh, the NRA is constantly a victim of uh, government, and they talk about themselves, and that gives them the sense of power <clears throat> that they can do whatever they want. Because one thing about being a victim is that it enables you to not have a conscience. Being a victim allows you to justify violence and justify whatever you're doing without worrying about anybody else's feelings about it. Wow. So you can do what you want and then justify it. It gives you like a moral authority that you wouldn't it otherwise have. Well, yes, it gives you a moral authority, but it's not a, it's a moral authority. It's more than a moral, it gives you a moral right that goes beyond moral authority. I mean, you can really do what you want. And I think that that's a very important uh, thing because victims are the ultimate victimizers. Is I've worked with a couple of patients over the years who are victims, see themselves as victims, and they just are constantly making me feel terrible as they victimize me. Wow. And I think that's one of the things that Putin, uh, if you're talking about him as a professional victim, and Trump was like that, he always said people were out to get me. He would, you know, look at uh, Saturday Night Live, and he's a victim of everything from Saturday Night Live to Hillary Clinton to anybody. Mm -hmm. He would search for victimizers and to see himself as a victim as a way of justifying being amoral and not and and being able to do whatever they want. I see this I see this working on on a on a macro level and a micro level. On the macro level yeah. it would be like we you know you the middle class out there who have been screwed by 40 years of Reaganomics, you're actually the victims of brown people coming across the border from South America or Central America and and Mexico. And which was, you know, Donald Trump's opening sales pitch for his you know his his candidacy for president. Um, you know, telling people that they're victims. Uh, so you've got this giant victimhood, and that's uh, uh, presumably what Putin is playing out. And then on the micro level, at the individual level, 
Um, you know, like when Steve Bannon gets arrested for, for running a scam on the, you know, and, and taking millions of dollars from people, um, you know, who thought they were contributing money to build a wall, and then, and then claims that he's the victim of the federal prosecutors in a witch hunt. Do I have that right? You have it exactly right. And in fact, what you just said about the first category, the macro level, is positively brilliant because this is an example where you can, if once you see yourself as a victim, like we, the middle class, have been the victim of Reaganomics, which I think is the case, you can then switch to a different victimizer. And that's the brown people coming across the border. In other words, you can see your, what, what a real good victim can do is they can find somebody else to be paranoid about and somebody else to be suspicious about. And that becomes your new victimizer. And that's the enemy. So so after 9-11, uh, I, I don't think anybody would argue that the United States wasn't a victim, actually, a real victim of uh, Osama bin Laden and his and his merry band. But Correct. after 9-11, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and, and the criminals in their, in their administration, uh, you know, Brett Kavanaugh and John Yoo and Jay Bybee, um, uh, who all said, oh, well, now that we're victims, it's justified to torture people. It's justified to, to interrogate people with violence to the point that some of them die. It's justified to take a, a, you know, a foreign base down in Guantanamo that has no legal standing in the United States and use it as a prison. It's, it's justified to completely ignore the Constitution because we're victims. Yes. So you cannot, you can throw morality, concern about a victim, about somebody you're hurting, uh, any kind of empathy, any kind of concern. You can throw that stuff out the window. But what I was also getting at is what George Bush did, what you were saying earlier. You can switch who's the victimizer. So he switched from Osama bin Laden to Saddam Hussein. Right. And that could justify going into Iraq, which was completely lying and wrong and all the stuff about WMDs and Colin Powell and all this stuff that was going on. These people were really lying and switching a victim so they can now justify by connecting Osama bin Laden with Saddam Hussein, and then you can go right in. And um, yeah. it really does allow you to justify not just torturing people you've captured and doing all of those things like in Guantanamo and various other things we've talked to, you've talked about. It also allows you to pick your own target. So in the so, con I'm sorry, finish your thought. You go ahead. You go ahead. So, in the context of both the micro uh, uh, victimization, you know, the the uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm the victim of my wife yelling at me or whatever. I mean, you know, the relationships yeah. from the micro to the macro. You know, Vladimir Putin claiming that he's the victim of NATO. Um, yeah. How do you rebut somebody who's playing the victim card most effectively? Well, you don't. You don't because when you play the victim card you have more cards than the other side. The, the one thing I've heard people say, I've had people come to me and, and, and try to play victim, and, and my response, you know, I'm not necessarily proud of this, but throughout my life, okay. my response is to say, no, no, I'm a big, bigger victim, right? Right. <laughs> you that's think that's terrible, what happened to you? Here's what happened to me. 
It's, yeah, it's like what Mel Brooks said, you know. Uh, people say, when I was a kid, we didn't have shoes, all that. And Mel Brooks once said, when I was a kid, we didn't have feet. <laughs> right, exactly. Raise the and ante. The ultimate victim. How can you beat that? You know? I'll see your victim and, I, and raise it. <laughs> right, right I'll, I'll be the victim and raise you one. Now, the other thing, though, that's important about Putin, which is that he's a victim of NATO. He's a victim of... America, really, because we in, 19, you know, in 89 and 92 and all that stuff, when the Iron Curtain came down, he really sees our country as dismantling Russia. And in some ways, Reagan kept saying that's what did it. And, you know, other people yeah. have different points of view. But the point is, he's a victim and he's been nursing his victimhood for a long time. One of the things that's important that people uh, in my field, especially psychoanalysts, I'm in a very limited field in that sense. Um, so we don't read much about Abraham Maslow. I don't know if you know him. I, I have read a lot of Maslow's work. I oh, love his hierarchy of human needs. Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, that was his seminal work. Well, it was. And he also had a thing on the authoritarian personality. Yep. Interesting to mention him just now because he was also Ukrainian. I didn't know that. He's of Ukrainian I didn't know that descent. either. Huh. Yeah, so his family were Jewish Ukrainian immigrants. Wow. So, so that makes it much more interesting. But what he said that's so interesting about 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 what we're talking about is about a world view that authoritarians have. And they developed that as children, and that's very similar to Trump's worldview, that the world is a jungle, and it's kill or be killed, and, and you have to be powerful. And they're victims. And the between Trump and uh, Putin as victims is that Putin has a greater good or a greater vision this that matters to him. This is the Tom Martin program. Right. I got it. Dr. Justin Frank, uh, Justin Frank, MD on Twitter. Dr. Frank, thanks so much for dropping by. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
great quote from uh, Jimmy Kimmel. It's funny listening to the same people who let the president get away with trying to overthrow the government call anyone soft on crime. Right. Hey, I've got a great science alert, uh, a geeky science alert for you here. Scientists have discovered a, a planet. It's about the size of Jupiter. So this is a really big planet, and it's really close to its sun. It, it circulates the sun. It's got an orbit of every 30 hours, so it's very close to the sun. So one side of the planet is just blisteringly hot. And the other side of the planet, which permanently faces away from the sun, is freezing, freezing cold. On, one, on the hot side of the planet, metal, principally aluminum, um, but there's, there's a vanadium and titanium. There's a bunch of metals that have been, it's so hot that they, the atmosphere is filled with these metals. They've been evaporated in, so the clouds of these metals that are blowing around at 18,000 kilometers an hour, right, about 10,000 miles an hour. And when, they, when the winds go around the dark side of the planet, the, the cold side of the planet, these metals condense out and, and rain down as rubies and sapphires, which is just incredible because rubies and sapphires are what happens when you condense aluminum with just a little bit of chromium, iron, or titanium in, in, in what is called corundum, which is you know, the, this condensed uh, aluminum oxide. It's just amazing. Can you imagine? I mean, it's like science fiction brought real. One last thing I wanted to point out to you, and then I'll pick up your phone calls, is uh, yesterday you probably heard Janice Rogers Brown name uh, repeated over and over and over again by Republican senators. And a lot of people are scratching their head going, why are these Republicans lamenting or whining about how Janice Rogers Brown was treated by Democrats on the committee? Well, Janice Rogers Brown is also a black woman, and she was nominated for the D.C. Circuit, which is where Ketanji Brown-Jackson is, is uh, currently serving. Janice Rogers Brown, however, was, in addition to being a black woman, a hardcore right-wing conservative. And by hardcore right-wing conservative, this is what I mean. She thought we should go back to the Lochner era. Like, you know, laws against child labor are, uh, should be taken off the books. The right to unionize should be taken off the books. I mean, that sort of stuff. She was, uh, I mean, she was just like totally, uh, shall we say, unqualified. She felt that the government should not e economically regulate the economy in any way or regulate business. She referred to the New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, the 1930s. She said this was the triumph of our own socialist revolution. George Will, the conservative columnist, described her as out of the mainstream of conservative jurisprudence. Nonetheless, after two years, the Republicans finally said, okay, enough of this Democratic filibuster. We're going to allow federal judges to be appointed with a simple majority vote. They broke the filibuster around her. And sure enough, she got on the D.C. Circuit. She stayed there for about 12 years, and then she left. And I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know how she left. I don't know if she, you know, retired or got sick or what. But she's not on the court any longer. But that's who they're talking about. This right-wing crazy who just happened to be, you know, a black and a woman, but she was a right-wing crazy. And they're like, oh, they're having a sad about it. Anyhow, picking up your phone calls here. Sean in North Platte, Nebraska. Hey, Sean, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom.
Tom, I've had an argument with people that I've never lost. Why is there bigger government at the state and county level than there is the government, especially red states, than there is the government itself? Like an example would be if you get assistance from the government, they encourage you to work more. They encourage you that you, you can own more assets. You, you can work more. You can, um, you can um, shoot. Like where the state government, they want to know all your business. They want to know um, you have to sell part of your assets. Um, mm. Where the government level, um, whereas at the federal they, um, government level, it's just yeah. yeah. Here, here's your social security check. Well, they're trying mm -hmm. they're trying to means test all that stuff. But I think Sean, your point is really yeah. well taken. The state governments yeah. really, really want to get into your life. They want to know what you own. They want to know what assets you have. They mm -hmm. want to make it really hard for you to get unemployment benefits, for example. They make want to make it really hard for you to get Medicaid benefits. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, any kind of benefits that the states provide. And they're constantly, you know, tightening the screws on these things. Excellent point, Sean. Thank you very much for calling and making it. James in Berkeley, California. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? Tom, I believe that if the U.S. and Europe are going to prevent a stalemate in Ukraine, we might need to make it clear uh, that Ukraine can go ahead and not become a member of NATO, can become a member of the EU, but that would be a, a non-exclusive membership in which they're able to also be a part of whatever trade regime or blocks or whatever are occurring in that part of the world. Yeah. Because uh, we need, you know, to act now to end this di diplomatically so the Biden administration is not put in a position of sending U.S. troops to Lithuania or Latvia. Yeah, uh, I, I get what you're saying, James. I think the next 48 hours or maybe 72 hours, the next two to three days, are going to be absolutely pivotal in this war. Number one, you've got Joe Biden just got on a plane to go to Brussels for a NATO meeting. That's going to be a big deal. The NATO's having essentially an emergency session to try to decide what to do. They could decide to put peacekeeping troops in Ukraine. Putin has come out and said, if you do that, it would be a very bad idea. In other words, he's afraid of that. Um, but it would be considered an escalation by him. I think that it's, uh, frankly, I'm, I think it's a reasonable thing, um, but, you know, we'll see. Uh, the other possibility is that, uh, and there's a lot of discussion about this, the, the U.S. government has released intelligence suggesting that Belarus is getting ready to send their troops in because Russia's troops are, are failing. And Belarus is, you know, just, what, 70, 80 miles from Kiev, and that's where the big failure is happening. And if the Belarusian uh, troops go into, uh, particularly to Kiev, to that area, um, they've got the numbers that Russia right now is lacking. And the question is, you know, will their, will their military go along with it? I mean, Belarus has had a very, very strong uh, independent, uh, not independence movement, uh, anti-authoritarian movement. Uh, you know, uh, Lukashenko is, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, is the name of the strongman dictator who runs Belarus. And you'll recall, you know, Rachel Maddow was all over this. The rest of the media pretty much ignored it. But this was last year, as I recall. There were these huge protests in the streets against Lukashenko, you know, basically stealing the last election. And, and, and he came and he started shooting. I mean, he was killing people. They were shooting live ammunition into those crowds. So the question, you know, will the Belarusian troops go along with it if he tries to send them in? Are they going to be, you know, just as discouraged and downhearted and, and poorly equipped as the Russian troops? Or does he have, you know, some sort of a, a SEAL team kind of squad 
of real true believers, hardcore, hard, you know, right-wing Nazi types who can, who can uh, go in and help. All of this is stuff we're going to find probably in the next two or three days. So, James, you know, your point is well made, and I think we are on the, on the cusp of something big happening. And it, and it could lead to World War III. It could lead to a resolution of the whole thing. We'll see. Um, but anyhow, James in Austin, Texas. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? Uh, yes, hello, Tom. Hey, James. Uh, I'm calling uh, about the uh, uh, 60 Minutes program that was on this weekend. I believe it was mentioned some yesterday. I watched that. There was a fascinating part. A major portion of it was a CEO of a large uh, financial corporation that was buying many, many houses throughout the United States and then renting them back to uh, middle class Yeah, I didn't see the segment. Was that BlackRock they were talking about? That's the, they're the largest player uh, in that space. I don't think that was it. It was another. I don't recall okay. the name, but there was a very significant part of it. The, the CEO was a rather... I don't know if the word smarmy or whatever. One of these mm. people was very proud of himself. At any rate, uh, he mentioned when asked, well, uh, doesn't this get the people into a situation where they might, uh, shouldn't they be buying houses? And he says, well, you don't understand these generations coming up now really can't get a mortgage because they have so much uh, uh, student debt and uh, perhaps medical debt. There you and go. So it, 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 which, of course, is not the, the two kinds of debt that don't exist in Canada or any European exactly. country. Exactly. So basically, what's happened is uh, this scheme of going and buying uh, ordinary single-family houses all over the United States, and then uh, uh, jacking them up uh, in rent, and then taking all these people who can't get a mortgage and never are able to build up equity. Yeah. Fascinating. I'm sure this is, a, a, as, as I understood from the program, this is happening throughout the country. It's not just this organization. Yeah. That's I, I wrote a piece it. about this about a month or two ago, and uh, it's worth reprising. I, 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 during the break, I think I'll dig through and retweet it, and, and you, can, you can see it, because it's got the names of a bunch of those companies, hot links to stories about them, all, all that kind of stuff. But Jim's spot on. Thanks for the heads up on that. Ryan in Sebastopol, California. Hey, Ryan, what's on your mind today? I was just thinking about protecting the vote and in a in our country with money where money talks um is there a way to tabulate what the vote is worth um in my head i crunched the gdp of 21 trillion divided by 350 million people at sixty thousand dollars a person a year i was wondering if we could if through executive order or otherwise is there a way that we could um, allow people who are illegally or wrongfully thrown off of voter rolls to sue the state for doing that. For the value of their vote. By, by the way, you would probably want to divide it by the number of registered voters in the United States. And I don't know for sure what that number is. I, 120 million sticks in my head, but I could be wrong. Um, but because uh, that might just be who, what the turnout was in the last election. I, I frankly don't recall, but it's less than the, the 360 million, which includes all the children in the United States and all the people who aren't registered right. to vote. So right. uh, that's interesting. How, how do you quantify damages? You know, if, if, if uh, Mike DeWine and his administration up in Ohio go ahead with what the Supreme Court authorized, or at least, you know, five right-wing cranks on the Supreme Court authorized a couple of years ago, and and purge you from the voting rolls even though you're a legitimate voter but you're the sin you committed was registering as a democrat if they purge you from the voting rolls how do you quantify the damage that was that was done to you by not allowing you to vote 
That's a fascinating right, exactly. question. I don't know the answer to the to that question, uh, Ryan, but you got me thinking. That's that's a great start. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Fred in Exeter, New Hampshire. Hey, Fred, what's on your mind today? Yes. Hi, Tom. I um, want to respond to your question that you had earlier, which is how do we change Republicans' minds? Yeah. I think it's really easy. There's got to be a limit on what free speech is in the media and Fox News, OEN, all these extremists that are out there are basically spewing sedition. They have free reign. And I think you had mentioned in one of your other shows that this is not allowed in any other country, but it's allowed here. And this has spawned a whole subculture in the States, starting with, you know, really propagated by Rush Limbaugh uh, and all his you know, minions that are like him that are on the airways and really just distorting people's minds. As you know from that documentary, the uh, brainwashing of my my father, uh, what he's called, Jen Senko, is a, yeah, yeah, is a clear example of how this happens, and this really has to stop because these people are just doing it for the money, and they're each trying to outdo each other in insanity. Oh, yeah. And then on top of that, you've got social media algorithms that drive this kind of stuff specifically. And, and the social media companies refuse to make public the, the algorithms, which, uh, you know, I think, frankly, you know, they should be transparent about. But I'm, I'm exactly. with you, Fred. I just don't have an answer for it. I, I'm, I'm not in favor of blowing up the First Amendment. Well, I am. (laughs) Okay. Fred, thanks for the call. I mean, Fred is right on one thing. You know, Canada said no to Fox News. No, you can't broadcast here. what What you're selling is poison. You can't do it. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back, Mike in Snake River, Idaho. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, Tom, how are you? Great. What's on your mind today? So are you familiar with the Idaho abortion ban that's mimicking Texas and Florida? No. Oh, my God. So it passed the House and the Senate. It's going to Governor Brad Little's desk for uh, for signing. It's a clone of the Texas bill? Oh, here's Idaho's little twist. And I don't get it because the people here are so nice. Any family member of the fetus can sue the abortion provider for a minimum $20,000 in damages, including family of the rapist. Whoa. Whoa. That's bizarre, Mike. I can't, I don't understand it. I lived in Colorado. I lived in Wyoming. The people here are so nice and the the politics is so radical. I don't get it. There's a pretty heavy Mormon influence here, but I looked up the Mormon views on birth control and things, and they're actually fairly progressive as people go. Yeah. I just, I I don't get it. And it's not getting any press, but I don't know why, why they're trying to out crazy 
Florida and Texas. So Ida, Idaho here. is about to sign a law where the family of a rapist can sue a raped and impregnated woman for getting an abortion for $20,000 in damages. And they is that 20000 bucks per provider? Oh, uh, sue the provider, not the woman. Okay, got yes. it. Let's say that that rapist has a really big family, got, you know, like five brothers and sisters. Can all five of them also, can they get 20000 bucks a piece out of the doctor? That is the way I read the bill, yes, Tom. Wow, this is nuts. Mike, thanks for the heads up on that. I'm, I'm going to have to do some digging. I appreciate the call. Brian in Joliet, Illinois. Hey, Brian, thanks for listening to WCPT. What's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Hope you're doing well. I find it peculiar that not a single report of any peaceful protests, given that talk of a possibility of World War III and thermonuclear war, that nowhere signs saying, like, down with Putin, no nuclear war. Don't you find it peculiar that there's no... I don't. I think that two things are going on. One is that people are calculating that the probability of Russia launching a nuclear strike against the United States is very, very low, probably close to zero. We have mutually assured destruction. Putin is not suicidal. He's nutty, but he's not suicidal. Breaking news, U.S. US Secretary of State Madeleine Albright just died. Thank you for that, Sean. Yeah, that said, she was one of the good ones. Yeah. So anyway, number one, I, I just don't think America is all that flipped out about it. And secondly, we are seeing the violence that war crimes barely begin to describe it. You know, the violence that he is wreaking, particularly on, on cities like Mariupol, where they've just bombed them into the Stone Age, and now they're continuing to bomb them. There's 100,000 people hiding in basements, and they're trying to bomb those basements. I mean, this is slaughter. This is mass murder. And I think all across America, you're seeing people who are just, like, really pissed off about it and really empathetic. This is completely different from what we saw in Iraq, Arguably, Afghanistan was perceived as a war of self-defense, and, and the horror, of course, was 9-11. This is that times a million. And I think that the only analog that you can draw to, the, to what's going on right now is World War II. And in World War II, Americans pulled together, even pacifists pulled together by and large. I mean, there were people who were exempted from the draft because they were Quakers and things like that. But, but by and large, they set aside the partisanship. I'd refer people to Rex Stout's book, The Illustrious Dunderheads. In that book, it lists all of the speeches given on the floor of the House of Representatives, mostly by Republicans talking about how, you know, this Hitler guy, we can work with this Hitler guy. It, it, he's not so bad, and you know, all this. That was a big thing. I mean, that was on the floor of the House and on the floor of the Senate. Rex Stout compiled, you know, hundreds of speeches given by these people saying, you know, it's not worth going to war over just, you know, Hitler killing some Jews in Poland. And all that changed after Pearl Harbor. All that changed when the United States got dragged into the war. And I, and I suspect we're at a very, very similar inflection point in American history right now. Brian, thank you for the call. Fred in LaPorte, Indiana. Hey, Fred. Yeah, our governor here, which is Republican, and the, of course the Republican is the Law and Order Party, just signed a bill Monday that in Indiana it will be okay for anybody to carry a handgun without getting a permit to do so. And under the protest of our head of our state police, and they didn't pay attention to him, and told him how bad it would be for police officers, not just state police, but police officers, to confront this when everybody can have a handgun. It's really one of the most underreported stories in America, how police generally oppose 
these radical gun laws that Republicans are passing, it well, almost the never gets coverage. He's made a, a, a boy, he was very intimate in his protest yeah. of the law, but they went ahead and passed it. Insane. Fred, thanks for that. Yes. Thanks for the heads up. I appreciate it. It's good to hear from you. Uh, amazing. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder by Jason Pack. And this is from the preface titled Welcome to the Enduring Disorder. Today's international system is like a ship adrift during a pandemic. With the captain lost to the virus and the most capable and conscientious members of the crew self-isolating in their cabins, the deck is now teeming with contagious megalomaniacs. Rather than collaborate, each thinks he knows how to steer the ship better than the admirals. As the winds pick up, a fight breaks out among those scrambling to infiltrate the bridge. When the winners emerge from this melee and they reach the captain's chair, some choose to deliberately steer into the choppiest waters, each clutching the steering wheel until a competitor bursts in behind them and ejects them from the hot seat. As the vessel craters from stem to stern, those with fainter constitutions or a greater respect for the competency hierarchy have simply chosen to retire to their cabins. Will the crew eventually reemerge from their quarters to put the technocrats back in charge? Might the most reckless passenger subjugate the others, lock the convalescent crew members in their quarters, and emerge as the new de facto captain? Or should some sort of self-sustaining equilibrium have been reached with the vessel zigging and zagging indefinitely, neither capsizing nor reaching port? From my vantage point, watching U.S. policy toward Libya, veered this way and that over the years, the events of the spring and summer of 2019 stood out as a high watermark of chaos and contradiction with a multiplicity of relevant actors vying for prominence. They were also representative, in microcosm, of larger global trends. Witnessing them led me to question my assumptions about the West's future role in the world and the fundamental principles underpinning the international system. It was dawning on me that the contemporary ship of state had become permanently unmoored, careening back and forth due to contradictory decisions undertaken by ill-coordinated power centers. Plato envisioned such a scenario in the Republic. He warned that true democracy would lead to populism. Contempt for experts would ensue, eventually culminating in short-sighted and reversal-prone approaches to policy formation. He also warned that once this point was reached, it would be nearly impossible to put the genie back in the bottle. Over the past few years, my day-to-day -day experience of the foreign policy-making process in Washington, London, and Tunis, and the re resulting outcomes in Libya, seem to be embodying Plato's forecasts. In keeping with this observation, this book proposes that the international system has exited the post-Cold War period with its well-established features and dynamics and entered a new historical epoch termed the Enduring Disorder. This new historical period, which remains under-researched, is characterized by its own structures, trends, and interactions. They are not scientific laws that can be definitely discovered through experimentation, but rather patterns and trend lines that may be intuited from lived experience. My main contentions about our historical moment are interrelated. One that the international system's interaction with Libya is an ideal arena to describe the key features of this new historical era, but that study of the Syrian, Yemeni, 
Venezuelan or Ukrainian microcosms would likely work as well. And two, that the enduring disorder will long outlast the specific sequence of events set in motion by former American President Donald Trump or any given Libyan warlord. My analysis is that their emergence on the world stage was merely symptomatic of the enduring disorder, not its root cause. Actually, it is the enduring disorder that has given rise to Trump, Brexit, and the unique trajectories of state implosion that have befallen Libya, Yemen, and Syria. On the ground in Libya in May of 2019, the latest round of civil war had settled into an uneasy stalemate. Economic activity was stymied. The water and electricity grids were periodically shut down by the combatants. Civilian casualties mounted, and international peacemaking efforts had ground to a halt. The previously bustling southern suburbs of Tripoli were now crisscrossed by the ebb and flow of tanks and technicals. A parallel war of maneuver was also unfolding on the banks of the Potomac. The allies of President Trump sought to outflank the permanent institutions of the U.S. government in the tussle to shape American policy toward Libya's perpetual conflict. This was yet another skirmish between familiar adversaries. In the prior battles between Team Trump and U.S. institutions to set various aspects of Russia, Ukraine, and the Middle Eastern policy, each side had already demonstrated its unique strengths and weaknesses. This dynamic of Team Trump versus the institutions would become intimately familiar to all Americans during the tug of war to set the governmental response to the COVID pandemic. So what were the relative tactics of the adversaries? Trump's Twitter bravado was highly effective at manipulating the media, but usually quite impotent at formally changing entrenched U.S. government policies. Was the president actually trying to change American policy, but exhibiting a lack of understanding of the tools open to the executive branch? Or was he achieving his aim simply by stirring confusion, creating uncertainty, and preventing coherent coordination with America's allies? The book, Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder by Jason Beck. Jason in uh, Hosquam, uh, Washington. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. Jason, we only have 30 seconds. You got a real quick point you want to make? Yes, uh, that's Hoquiam, Washington, and about Russia shooting soldiers that were in World War II that were not engaged in battle. Right. I just wanted to point out that I saw a documentary, I can't remember exactly where, but we threatened to do the same thing under Persian and Pershing in World War I. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's, it's not uncommon, Jason. It's, it's just not uncommon. Thanks a lot for the call. Hey, and special thanks to Louise Harbin, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabberwocky, Jay LeBlanc, Al Gorilla Rhythm, Connor Arroyo, and Carna Verde, the folks who help make this program and our little chat room over on YouTube work. Thank you to all of you, and thank you to you for supporting our program and our sponsors and our stations. Uh, get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Pray for peace. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 